You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me look at you. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Happy Super Bowl Sunday to all whom celebrate. My lovely motor vehicle broke down again this week, so I'm really hoping I win some money in the office pool. Sports go sports. Straight on to the topic this week because, well, once again, no car. Today, we're covering the life of a talented actress who became one of the best-known character actors in film history. Throughout her life, she had to fight racism, typecasting, and controversy to make her own place in an industry she loved with all of her heart, and that gave her back so little in return. This week, Hattie McDaniel. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Private Jones is camping on the doorstep of Miss Katie Brown. She must be the very, very coldest creature in this town. He's been there for seven days and nights. And now he's leaving soon. And still she won't, still she won't, still she won't say. I do. Ice cold Katie, won't you marry the soldier? Ice cold Katie, won't you do it today? Ice cold Katie, won't you marry the soldier? Soon he'll march away. Yeah. Ice cold Katie. It was a a once-in-a-four-year occurrence, a February 29th, to be exact, at the segregated Coconut Grove Club at the now-demolished Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles that the 12th Annual Academy Awards was taking place. Being celebrated that night were the films of what would be later considered the greatest year in cinema, 1939. That night, an actress by the name of Hattie McDaniel would become the first African-American to win an Oscar for her pivotal role of Mammy in the film Gone with the Wind. After a career playing small supporting roles, it appeared that Hattie McDaniel had finally struck it big in Hollywood. Unfortunately, it would be the highest point of her career. Hattie McDaniel was born on June 10, 1893 in Wichita, Kansas, to Susan Holbert and Henry McDaniel, two formerly enslaved people. Susan was a gospel singer, and Henry was a veteran of the Civil War-turned-banjo player. The couple would move their big family to Colorado when Hattie was still quite young. From a young age, Hattie was a natural performer. Her parents viewed show business as a chance for their children, especially their daughters, to be something other than servants to white people. Henry, the patriarch, would enter his children into talent competitions in the hopes to win cash prizes. Hattie's wit and comic timing were a big hit with their early audiences. The children would start their own vaudeville troupe and would tour all over the American West. Hattie was one of the headliners. 
As the motion pictures began to draw audiences away from the vaudeville circuit, most of the McDaniel brood picked up and moved out to Hollywood. Hattie did a little bit of dabbling in music in Chicago before joining the rest of her family. She did so in 1931 and moved in with her brother Sam and sisters Etta and Orlena. Sam and Etta had actually managed to get some acting work already. When Hattie could not do the same, she would take jobs as a maid or cook, the fate her father had hoped his daughters would never have. This didn't dim her spirit, though, and nearly every week, Hattie was attending studio cattle calls, which don't really exist anymore, but it was basically a day a few times a week when everyone who moved out to make it big in the pictures shuffled through a casting office to potentially gain work as an extra in a film for $3.50 a day. And by $3.50, I mean $3.50. For black actors, this typically meant playing savages, slaves, singing slaves, caricatures of themselves as dim or clumsy or both, or yes, if you were a woman, you were likely playing a maid. That was it. But how else were they going to feed their families? The moral anguish of whether or not to take these offensive roles or to be a domestic worker, because that's all society would allow her to be, would plague Hattie and many other Black actors from this era for the majority of their careers. It's not always easy to find a line between integrity and ambition. Soon, Hattie's brother Sam began working on a radio program, The Optimistic Do Nut Hour, and was able to get his sister a spot on the show. She performed as Hi-Hat Hattie, a sassy maid. Her show became pretty popular, but her salary was so low on the radio that she had to continue moonlighting as a maid. Hollywood eventually did come knocking for Hattie McDaniel, though she did turn down several roles that she deemed to be wildly offensive. She knew she had an incredibly narrow window of opportunity for parts that she would be given, so she decided that if she was going to play a maid, she was going to be the best damn actor playing a maid Hollywood had ever seen. Hattie's first film appearance was in The Golden West from 1932, in which she played a maid. Her next role was in the Mae West film I'm No Angel from 1933, in which she played a... let me check... yeah, a maid. She appeared in several other films during this time, though widely uncredited and often singing in choruses. In 1934, she'd worked enough to finally be able to join SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Her hard work and comedic genius finally began to attract attention from producers, which led to larger film roles. Fox had put her under contract to appear in The Little Colonel from 1935, which starred Shirley Temple, Bilbo Jangles Robinson, and Lionel Barrymore. Heidi played a, say it with me, maid, and the film is famous for featuring the first interracial dance pairing in Hollywood history, which was Shirley and Robinson. The scene was so controversial that it was cut out of the prints shown in the American South. Why? Because the angelic little white girl touched the black man's hand. That's it. That's the whole reason why I got cut out. Judge Priest from 1934, directed by John Ford and starring Will Rogers, featured Hattie in her first leading role. The part also showcased her singing ability and included a duet with Will Rogers. The two would become good friends during production. In 1935, McDaniel had some more prominent roles and the studios really gave her so many different roles to play. She was a sloppy maid in RKO's Alice Adams, a funny maid in China Seas, which starred Jean Harlow and would mark the first time Hattie and Clark Gable would work together, and as a cook, oh yeah, and a maid, in Murder by Television, which starred Bella Lugosi. 
Despite playing the same type of character every single time, Hattie managed to bring a depth to her roles in a way that had not really been seen before. She could play against other actors in her scenes and pretty much blow all the leading men in Starlets out of the water with a glare or a witty repartee. When critics were, well, critical of Hattie always playing a maid, she quipped back, quote, Well, I'd rather play a maid and make $700 a week than be a maid for $7. Hattie sang in the 1936 film Showboat, after which she had major roles in Saratoga from 1937, repairing with Jean Harlow and Clark Gable, The Shopworn Angel from 1938, The Mad Miss Manton also from 1938, and by 1939, Hattie McDaniel was one of the most famous black actors in Hollywood, a star in her own right. Her next role, though, would shape the rest of Hattie's life. Miss Melly, this year has done broke her heart. But I didn't fetch you here on Miss Scarlett's account. What that child got to stand, the good Lord give us strength to stand. It's Mr. Red I was worried about. He done lost his mind these last couple of days. Oh, no, Mammy, no. I ain't never seen no man, black or white, sit such a store on any child. When Dr. Mead say her neck broke, Mr. Red grabbed his gun and ran out there and shoot that poor pony. And for a minute, I think he got to shoot his son. Oh, poor Captain Butler. And yes, and Miss Scarlett, she called him a murderer for teaching that child to jump. She said, you give me my baby what you kill. And then he said, Miss Scarlett ain't never cared nothing about Miss Buckley. They like to turn my blood cold, the things they say to one another. Stop, Mammy, don't tell me anymore. <laughs> The story behind the making of Gone with the Wind is a saga for another day, but from the very beginnings of pre-production to the moment the film took home the Oscar for Best Picture in 1939 was a full-blown spectacle with quite a bit of drama to go alongside. Casting the characters had been a big part of this hubbub, and whom would play the female lead, Scarlett O'Hara, definitely gets most of the attention on this subject. But what a lot of people don't know is that the role of Mammy was also a big deal. In a time when every black actress in town was forced to fiercely compete for the same measly parts, Mammy was a chance to do something with incredible depth, rarely afforded to them. Competition was so fierce for that part that even First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt wrote to David O. Selznick, the film's producer, to request that her personal maid, Elizabeth McDuffie, be cast in the part. Hattie didn't think she would be chosen because she was a comedic actress, not a dramatic one. Back then, it was nearly impossible for an actor to appear in both types of films. One source claimed that Clark Gable had actually recommended that the role be given to Hattie. Another said that Bing Crosby saw her in Showboat and pressured O'Selznick to give her the part. Whatever the case, Hattie went to her audition dressed in a period-authentic maid's uniform. Selznick was so impressed, he canceled all other auditions for Mammy. He could, quote, already smell the magnolias. Every actress that would screen test for Scarlett from that point on had to act alongside Miss Hattie McDaniel. Not everyone was super stoked about this movie. Upon learning of the planned film adaptation, the NAACP fought hard to require the film's producer and director to delete all racial slurs from the movie and to alter scenes that were historically inaccurate. 
like The Klansman, the book on which Birth of a Nation was based on that we talked about last week. The novel Gone with the Wind also featured a scene in which members of the KKK appear as the good guys, saving a bunch of white people from quote-unquote savage black people. Throughout the South at this time, black men were being lynched based on false allegations that they had harmed white women. This is the era in which To Kill a Mockingbird takes place for context to those of you whom had ninth grade English in the United States. So a film that showed black people as savages made by a major studio was the last thing anybody needed. Like we've learned this month, and well, frankly, for the last two years as a society, there are people that will see things on a screen and take them as fact without consulting any other sources. In response to the NAACP's request, the attack scene was altered and some of the offensive language was modified, but other slurs did remain in the film. Plus, the film's views of slavery and slaves essentially remained the same. Filming for Gone with the Wind took place from late January to November 1939 and premiered just one month later on December 15th, 1939 in Atlanta. Gone with the Wind was the city's first movie premiere. The premiere drew nearly all of Atlanta's 300,000 residents to Lowe's Grand Theater. It was a flashy, star-studded affair. Hattie's fans had crowded the airport and the hopes to see her as the special Gone with the Wind labeled plane landed at the airport carrying all the film stars. Well, not all the film stars. Hattie, nor any other black member of the cast, was there. Georgia was still incredibly segregated, and despite pleas from some of her fellow cast and Selznick, MGM did not want to riot and persuaded Selznick to not let Hattie attend. Clark Gable, whom was pretty close friends with Hattie, threatened to boycott the premiere because of this decision. Hattie convinced him to go anyway. Hattie would write David O. Selznick, telling him she would be unable to promote the film at that time anyway to quell any further tensions. This omission of the entire black half of the cast from the film's premiere angered local black leaders, which, you know, rightfully so, and they lambasted the film, specifically Hattie's portrayal of Mammy. There were picketers present at the film's premiere in Atlanta, and demonstrations followed in most major cities. Hattie was allowed to attend the Hollywood premiere two weeks later, allowed, Jesus, and Selznick made sure she was featured prominently in the program. Controversy aside, and there is much, much, much controversy, Hattie's portrayal of Mammy was nuanced and powerful in a way that no Black character had really had the opportunity to be in a big Hollywood studio film. Naturally, like race films, lots of opportunities, lots of depth. But this, while she was playing a maid, she was able to hold her own in a way that just wasn't around at that time. Hattie steals every single scene she was in because, frankly, she was probably the best actor in that movie. That role should have been a liberating moment for Black actresses, and in many ways, yes, it was. But a step forward for Hollywood is not a step forward necessarily for America. And many outside of Hollywood saw this portrayal as a major step in the wrong direction. The role of Mammy in Gone with the Wind also took place during a time when African Americans were fighting for the most basic of civil rights. And that as a result, some saw this as a major ding for the civil rights movement. The film showed the enslaved characters as part of the family and glossed over the horrific parts of slavery to make the story about a family whom loved their staff they didn't have to pay because they owned them or whatever, and how they were, during this time, were only considered three-fifths of a human being, and not the atrocities the Civil War abolished. 
for that and showing Mammy's loyalty to the White family over anything else, many condemned Hattie McDaniel for taking on this role. Despite all of this, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences found Hattie's performance riveting, especially a scene near the end of the film, which you heard a piece of at the last break, where Hattie and co-star Olivia de Havilland walk through Tara, the family home, updating de Havilland's character on the state of her sister after the tragic death of their daughter. Hattie was thrilled to be nominated for an Oscar. She never thought this would be a reality for her. And why wouldn't she think that? She was the first African-American person even ever nominated for an Oscar. She would be the first Black actor to even attend the ceremony. As she walked to her table, she received a standing ovation. Now back then, as I mentioned, the Coconut Grove was segregated, but in those early days of the Oscars, the press was given a heads up on who the winners were. When word slowly snuck out that Hattie had won the award, she was given a seat. Only then. When she was announced the winner, Hattie took to the stage and gave the following speech. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests, this is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. Instead of a full-sized Oscar, in the early days of the Oscars, supporting actors were given more of a placard-looking thing with a tiny Oscar next to it on a base. Hattie's Oscar, unfortunately, has been lost to time. Hopefully it's in a private collection somewhere because I hate to think of it as being destroyed. After her death, she willed her Oscar to Howard University, where it remained until 1960. After a series of student protests, the statue disappeared. Whether it was destroyed because of the role Hattie played in the film or as a casualty to the movement, the fate of Hattie's Oscar is unknown. To honor Hattie's achievement on that night, the Academy Museum has left an empty case in its Hall of Oscars to mourn the loss of the award and its relevance in Oscar history. A black woman would not win an acting Oscar until 50 years later when Whoopi Goldberg won for Ghost. A black actress wouldn't win Best Actress until 2001 when Halle Berry won for Monsters Ball at the 74th annual ceremony. After winning the Oscar, Hattie got married in 1941 to a man named James Lloyd Crawford, whom loved his new wife's stardom, a status that Hattie found bittersweet. Winning the role of Mammy ended up typecasting Hattie McDaniel in the most extreme way possible. She won the biggest award in her field, yes, but she was expected just to go back and keep playing the same role. MGM, her studio, and David O. Selznick wanted to capitalize on Hattie playing a maid until they couldn't anymore. As a contract player, Hattie had no choice but to comply. If she refused, she could be fired. The figure of Mammy and Americana would be used to sell coffee, pancake mix, cleanser, and anything kind of similar to that. This image of a black woman with exaggerated facial features and the maid's costume was used for decades. Hattie believed that in taking on the role of Mammy, she would rise above the stereotype and would do more good than harm. But now she was forced to dress up as Mammy to sell products to consumers because MGM made her. 
Though happy to be working, Hattie grew to resent this treatment. MGM and Selznick also told her to eat lots of pancakes and fried chicken to maintain her full nearly 300-pound figure. That's a direct pull from a source. They actually told her that to her face. Hattie got one brief respite from playing Just the Maid, and it wasn't even at her own studio. She was loaned out to Warner Brothers to appear in In This Our Life, an ahead-of-its-time picture that featured Black actors in roles other than maids, servants, or something else profoundly racist. Hattie plays the mother of a young man whom is accused of a crime he did not commit. Some naysayers doubted Hattie could play such a role, and boy, did she prove them wrong. Hattie's character was as a laundress, yes, but that was not her role in the forefront of the film. In this film, she was allowed to go against all other roles she'd played and be able to stand up to white people for her son instead of next to them for going all other personality traits. David O. Selznick would never loan Hattie out again and fear anyone see her as anything but Mammy. But times were changing. In 1941, when the U.S. joined World War II, attitudes began to shift drastically as the nostalgia for the antebellum South was traded for patriotism and a desire to stick it to Adolf and those pesky Nazis. This change in audience tastes forced Hollywood to reevaluate the films it was putting out. The NAACP jumped on this and called for the studios to stop making black people a stereotype in their pictures. The head of the NAACP, Walter White, made a list of the most racist depictions of black people in cinema. Three of Hattie's films, which included The Little Colonel and Gone with the Wind, were at the very top. He called it anti-mammyism, and White personally targeted Hattie. But what was she supposed to do? She was stuck in an era where playing anything but a maid as a black woman just wasn't a thing, at least not at her age. White focused on another black actress, Lena Horne, as the pinnacle of what black actors should strive to be. Well, Lena was tall, conventionally gorgeous, came from an upper-middle-class background, and was highly educated. As we all know, conventionally attractive skinny people historically always have an easier time at things. But the reason Lena likely got the role she did, which was like as a, you know, as the as the leading lady, was because she looked white, especially in black and white pictures. I'm sure she was also putting makeup and lit in such a way to hide any hint that she wasn't completely white, because that's the kind of sketchy shit that people did back then if it sold tickets. This is what is known as passing, which means when you're biracial, that you pass for Caucasian, therefore making it quote unquote easier to move through white society. Lena managed managed to negotiate in her contract to state that she would never play a maid. Her studio agreed. Lena's rise to fame would indirectly lead to a hard fall for Hattie. As Hattie's fight with the head of the NAACP got uglier, Hattie struggled to find work and she was perpetually cast as a maid when she did. White called her selfish and that she shouldn't take any role that stereotyped black people. Hattie fought back and mentioned the fact that White was only one-eighth black, making him unqualified to have opinions on the matter. Her last film for MGM was as a maid in the wartime drama Since You Went Away in 1944. This role would be her last major film role. And just like that, Hattie's film roles disappeared practically overnight. 
but maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Now 49, Hattie announced that she was pregnant with her first child. Thrilled, she threw herself an opulent baby shower. But when she went to the doctor, there was a problem. There was no baby. Hattie had experienced something known as a false pregnancy, something your body can do if you are so desperate to conceive a child, it gives you all the symptoms of pregnancy minus baby. She was understandably devastated. Her husband was next to no comfort in this matter. As times got tough financially, her husband refused to work and Hattie kicked his ass to the curb. With everything so chaotic, Hattie fell into a state of deep depression. She withdrew from society widely and some records allude to the fact that she may have tried to take her own life. A noble cause brought her back into the limelight. For decades, housing had been segregated into neighborhoods based on race in addition to income. These were called restrictive covenants and were done to keep neighborhoods white. In 1945, a group of her white neighbors attempted to kick Hattie and some other of her black neighbors out of their neighborhood. Hattie was furious. She organized her neighbors and fought back. Their case would eventually reach the Supreme Court, which would do away with restrictive covenants. Because of Hattie McDaniel, housing discrimination in Los Angeles was made illegal. Hattie was cast next for a radio show in 1947 called The Beulah Show, in which she played a maid. But this time, she was in the driver's seat as to what she would and would not do. She would not do the stereotypical accent, and she would be paid two grand per week, twice what her Gone with the Wind contract had been. If she was going to be a maid, it would be on her terms. It was around this time that critics actually began recognizing her achievements and acting prowess and recognized the lack of opportunities Hattie was afforded and sort of gave her like as much of an apology as she was ever going to get for them kind of being a-holes to her. Hattie became arguably more famous for The Beulah Show than she had ever gotten for Gone with the Wind. Three years later, in 1950, the show transitioned to television. But after filming just one episode, Hattie grew quite ill. She went to the doctor and got some really bad news. It was breast cancer. After undergoing a year of treatment in the spring of 1952, Hattie had to quit Beulah. She was just getting too sick. But Hattie was still a born performer. Edwin, a friend from her vaudeville days and the voice of the Mad Hatter for you Disney fans, had one of the most popular shows on television at the time, and he asked Hattie to make another appearance on his show as Beulah. It would be her last filmed performance. Hattie McDaniel died on October 26, 1952. She was only 59 years old. Her funeral procession was reportedly one of the biggest in Los Angeles history. She was also the first black woman buried in what is now known as the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Hattie worked hard for most of her life to make the best of the situations of her time in an industry that she loved dearly without ever receiving the recognition she was due in her lifetime. It took a lot of gusto, determination, and, of course, talent to do what Hattie did. She once stated that she wished to be remembered as an actor, a film pioneer, a star. Well, one thing is for sure, even if it wasn't always in her lifetime. Hattie McDaniel was a bona fide movie star. Some of these days, you're gonna miss me, honey. Some of these days, you're gonna feel so low. You'll miss my hugging. You're gonna miss my kissing. And 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the life of one of the most famous Black actors in history and a film pioneer in his own right, Sidney Poitier. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Uh-oh.